Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I want to start off by talking to you about New York because mm. I, I've never been to New York, but I've had a lot of real like New York characters on the show jesse malin tommy victor like a lot of dudes from that city that have been integral to the city's music landscape and scene right and i love hearing all about it because for me that whole max's kansas city cbgb scene spawned so much great art even from the hip-hop side of things as well and disco it was like a period of time where I guess the three main musical genres that dominated the 20th century and beyond, punk, disco, hip-hop, all were born in one place in like a couple of year window. So the, the landscape of that place and that time fascinates me. Mm-hmm. So you were born in New York, right? In what year? 71? 71. You 71. Nailed it, yeah. So you obviously were slightly too young to get that initial wave, but you would have been right there as a teenager for like the New York hardcore wave, right? right? Well, the second round of it, I think, like the tail end of Agnostic Front, Cro-Mags, um, Leeway, Sheer Terror. Um, Carnivore had already broken up and reunited. Um, so early 90s, like LOA started summer 89. And we were actually um, more involved in the Brooklyn scene 
rather than the CBGB scene. So Lemoore's was our home. Right. And um, we would take the bus to Lemoore's. You know, we were all going to high school together and um, and then college in the city. Joey and I went to art school. And um, and we would play with the band on the weekends and jam, you know, after school during the week or cut out of school and stay in my basement and write songs. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but we would be at Lemoore's every week didn't matter really which bands were coming through that was a place to hang out and it was a scene as far as that's where your friends were going to be and um it was a fun time and but who did, was you, also, who did you see like we saw slayer there fuck uh you know sold out um faith no more quicksand white zombie biohazard was rising in the scene at that time uh, as an unsigned band and then when they got signed it was like it was like your friends got made in the mob you know it was right. like yeah 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 they're, they're a national act now holy shit you know um and that was uh inspiring to us to see because we looked up to those guys who were a couple years older than us we've got billy here tonight at the whiskey right playing with, playing with power flow so it's like the family's back together again um you know, uh, Joey and I would draw T-shirts for those guys. Uh, Joey roadie for Billy. I actually grew up across the street from Evan as a child um, before music was even in our lives. We literally lived right across the street from each other um, in Canarsie. And uh, was he always a larger than life character? Yeah, he was. <laughs> <laughs> it was one time it was snowing <clears throat> and He's shoveling snow, wearing these fuzzy, uh, knee-high mammoth boots. I, like the rave boots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And um, ripped jeans, no shirt, and streaked Bon Jovi type of hair. Shoveling snow outside, and his mother screaming at him, Evan, get, get your ass in here. What are you doing? You're crazy. And I'm like looking at him from across the street through the window. And I said, Mom, what's, what's, up, with him? what's up with Evan? Why is he shoveling snow with no shirt on <laughs> she's just shaking her head but we um we ended up moving away uh in my early teens and then i had a some kind of accident where i needed stitches and i was in the hospital and evan was delivering pizza to used to work at lenny and john's the local pizza hangout and he was delivering pizzas to the emergency room and uh recognized my father he didn't recognize me i had long hair down on my ass by then he recognized my dad and he came over and he's like, Alan? I was like, yeah. And I was probably about 16 at that point. And he gave me a pass to come see Biohazard at Lemoore's. And that was my first experience seeing a heavy metal concert in the flesh. That was it? Yeah. Biohazard at Lemoore's. Yeah. I, I think they played with, um, with White Zombie. Because they were a New York band as well. I forget yeah, that sometimes. Like sure. They were synonymous with that kind of 90s Yeah, they came up in that there, whole scene, they? yeah. So, Who's that dude, the, the gay promoter? There was a documentary made about him recently, the famous... Michael Lago. Yes. Yeah. Who we're, the fuck's that guy? Is the documentary, Yeah, we're very right? close with Michael. What an amazing character he was. Sweet guy. Yep. The irony of chatting to you about New York on Sunset Boulevard <laughs> is so We've wonderful. We've been coming here well. a long time. <laughs> I remember driving out here in a van... That was breaking down. We we went from Brooklyn, New York, straight out, three days straight, no stopping, only for gas and some food, um, 
arriving to play, uh, you know, L.A. for the first time. Never, I don't think any of us had come out west before. Where was that first show at? You remember? I, you know, I don't. I, I don't think it was the whiskey, although we played the whiskey that on that tour. I, you know, it, I think uh, I'm really not sure. I don't want to lie. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where it was. But we played whiskey on that tour. On that tour, I think on the Jenna Tortures tour. That was an odd pairing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, what I like about the '90s in particular, maybe more so than ever, before or since, is every band was so unique and distinct and different, even within scenes. Oh yeah, and like, you know, especially the bands that would come through the Moors because that was the spot, and even bands like XL from the West Coast that would and Suicidal that would come through, and you get these different flavors of punk and hardcore that it would influence the East Coast bands. And um, it was always cool to see that and discover bands without having to even search for them. They came right to our spot. Express delivery style. Yeah. On your doorstep. Yeah, and then you'd go to the record store and find their CD, uh, not their CD, their cassette back then, um, or the vinyl. And um, even Misfits and... um, and all that stuff you know it's like there was no internet so it's like if you were into music you would find out by trading tapes yep or going to see live shows original piracy <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yep. small scale piracy yeah um let me ask you about art school so you went there to study cartoon drawing did you or were you was it like a broad degree that encompassed all cross sections of art, and then you just ended up specializing in that area because that was what was your well. Here's niche a funny interest. I was always drawing, and I was I grew up as a very quiet, shy kid, and through drawing, I made a lot of friends because I would always draw what was ever on my mind, which was usually gory monsters or people getting their limbs torn off or whatever. I was into horror, and I would sit at the lunchroom table in school and just doodle and. Kids would look over my shoulder and go, oh, look what he did today, you know, and I wouldn't have to say a word. And I made a lot of friends like that. Over time, I got more outgoing and it was easier, but that definitely helped break the ice in a social setting for me. Um, So I always did well in the art classes, much better than math or science or anything like that. And I ended up getting uh, into a specialized art uh high school of art and design uh you had to take a test you had to do a drawing test a written test i got in uh it was in the city so it was a big trip for me uh taking the subway and stuff for the first time as a kid uh i went there and then i would take an express bus back to brooklyn and it was like an hour and a half each way and i would get home i would leave in the dark and come home in the dark every day and I really was not liking it and um, I was really into metal I was into like at that time uh, Possessed and Slayer and Venom and stuff like that so I had long hair the, the, the MC and I'm standing out at the bus stop every day and here's this kid next to me with kind of like curly hair a curly devil lock an MC always with misfit stuff on and um we never said a word to each other 
we were too cool to talk to each other. And we were at the same bus stop every day for six months. I love it. And that was Joey Zampello. And we didn't, we didn't know each other. But we both were in that school, and we both transferred at the same time to the Brooklyn High School because right. we didn't like the, the high school. We didn't like the commute, and there was also a lot of racial violence in that school. So we both transferred, and then we recognized each other in the same art class in the Brooklyn School. And finally plucked up the courage to yeah. say hello and yeah. talk. Yeah. I love and it. The, one of the first uh, experience we had was I had already reconnected with Evan. I was going to the Biohazard rehearsals when they were unsigned, and I had the Biohazard demo on cassette on my Walkman. And I said, you want to hear something really cool? And I let him hear it, and he loved it instantly. And I brought him to the studio to meet Biohazard, and we've been friends ever since. And, you know, that really got us going as wanting to do music. You know, I, I had, at at that time, I was playing in a, in a local band, and Joey and Keith back then were playing in their own band right across the street from each other on the same block. And uh, then we just... They lost a member, and I decided to join them, and then we changed the name. I had the idea to name it Life of Agony, and it really started right back then, 1989. It happened pretty fast as well, it's safe to say, right? I mean, the response to that first album was insane, and that was a massive album for Roadrunner, for that genre. It was a huge, like, debut splash that you guys made, wasn't it, with that album? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, so from, I would say, our first show was 1990, February 11th. Between 1990 and 1992, when we got signed to Roadrunner, uh, we felt this momentum, you know, from this little hardcore band uh, to finding our sound, to working with Josh Silver from Typo Negative, who produced our early demos, and eventually River on Dread, the album. Um, we had the same management as Typo Negative. So it was very incestuous. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and it was uh, definitely a, a big. You you could feel the swell of the the popularity of the band growing. We would go up and down the East Coast all the time, building a following, until finally that record came out and we 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 made a big impact. And then we went to Europe for the first time on a sold out tour with Propane, um, and the reaction there for the band was just mind blowing. What's your memory, before we talk more about the album, what is your memory of Typo Negative, and especially of Pete, as a, just as a rock star, really, like a true, larger-than-life, unique figure in, in musical history? He was a, a one-of-a-kind dude, you, right? He's one of the funniest <laughs> motherfuckers I ever met. Uh, very, such a true, dark, Brooklyn, sarcastic type of humor. Um very uh warm um and uh exceptionally talented right oh my god i mean i say it all the time that this band would not exist without carnivore um that was one of our biggest influences and pete pete's genius um to just kind of open those those doorways of imagination of what you could do with heavy music um and, uh, you know, I have a lot of really awesome memories of him just 
not on the stage. Yeah, how bad? And um, hanging out in Josh's house. I was, you know, very close with Josh all through making the demos and, and the album. And we would hang out at his house. He had a studio in his house. So uh, we would hang out and talk all the time. And Pete lived on that block. So you, Pete would just pop in from time to time. Sometimes, <laughs> one time in particular, me and Josh are hanging out in Josh's room and I hear all this banging and clanking outside. I'm like, what the hell is that? And Pete comes in and he's wearing these like knee high tube socks <laughs> and like these Daisy Duke cut off jeans <laughs> and uh, a tank top and a headband. And he asked Josh for a wrench or something like that. And he goes and gets it to him. And I, and I look in the backyard and Pete's building a 12 foot tall metal cross that they ended up using in one of their videos and it was like this orthodox jewish neighborhood and it was just a, it was classic pete you know it was like oh my god and then the, you know we were actually in a in a few of the type of type of videos in disguises um where the the whole band uh was in the black number one video dressed as droogs um you know with with all the long underwear and the dick noses yeah yeah that's us in the background if you look closely and um and then there was another christian woman video where we're, we're like wearing like monk robes and gas masks and we're dancing around some girl on a pentagram or some shit like that on the it, it was like after hours at lamore's and they like decorated everything with candles and stuff it was wild. We, Lemoore's was like the hangout, you know. Yeah. So even like you'd go there even if there wasn't a gig, like it would be the spot where you just congregate and. Yeah, because it was like like we played cards there, we played poker there. Um, our manager at the time, Ken Creedy, was the guy that booked the shows there, so he had an office there. Uh, so we would go there after hours all the time and play cards and hang out and go to the office to talk to Ken and stuff, and then one time they hired Joey and I to paint murals in the place nice and so we we bought all this paint and we got ladders and we painted the whole club in these wild psychedelic faces and neon colors and stuff and black light and it was wild I got some pictures somewhere um, and we were convinced the place was haunted because we only had three nights to paint it because it's they were opening up a new club on one end of it. And so we had to start at like 11 o'clock at night and paint all night until the people would come. And so we would separate. I was doing, the, I was painting the lobby and Joe was in the back room. And then uh, he thought someone was calling his name and he thought it was me. And he turned around and no one was there. And he starts running out to the front of the club. He's like, did you just call my name like I was like I've been on this ladder for like the last hour and he was like we gotta get out of here this place is haunted wrap this job quick <laughs> yeah that's so good that's so I mean so th that album the first album memories of making it for you what springs to mind and was it predominantly would you say in like from your mind were you the lead songwriter on that album well I wrote all the lyrics right um but it was definitely a group effort and, and just the sound of it like all the suggestions that Josh had made 
um, tuning down. You know, we we recorded all the demos in standard E tuning, and he suggested that we should tune down to D, which we did, and we were like, oh, yeah, this sounds heavier. And, and then he encouraged us to slow down the tempos to make it even more heavy. He uh, encouraged us to, um, you know, just take another look at at the song structures and uh he was he was he had a vision for that record he was able to see uh something that we couldn't see and like i was always a big pink floyd fan and and so was mina um and so i always had the vision of wanting to do a concept record and um i think that's where all the interludes yeah came through but but josh was the one who put those soundscapes together he knew how to use audio clips and and layer them in a way to make them sound like real scenes and so he he was really gifted in that way and so he was able to bring these ideas to life and so even though uh you know maybe the idea spawned from me he actually executed them from production standpoint in a creative way and so in that way it's very much a collaboration and you know it couldn't have happened without uh everyone that was involved and it you know that record was so strong for mina's voice and and all the the guidance that josh gave her back then and and working with joey on guitar sounds and really getting the right performances out of everybody um suggesting that sal uh join us on the recording and then later you know he joined the band but um at the time he was still in typo um it's such a unique album from that time period like it stands up it's 25 years isn't it this year yep. which is insane yeah yeah <laughs> um I, sp I spoke to mina obviously she's been on the show and she talked a bit about her childhood her upbringing if you wrote the lyrics and a lot of the themes in that album are quite dark and difficult and painful, did you have a tumultuous upbringing as well? Were you writing about a lot of stuff that was close to home for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I was definitely a frustrated, de depressed, angry uh, person. Um, and I got a lot of that out through the music um and i think that also you know songs like this time which were directly about joey's up upbringing and his and his relationship with his family um just being so close with with one another i was able to take his feelings and put them into lyrics um and i think that's why that record did connect with so many people because these are such common problems and common themes that everyone goes through um at that age yeah in that time and that's why it's had the longevity um because it was written in a way that even if you put it on now you could relate to the message and um and that's something that we tried to tap into again in the later records um, when we realized that these albums were helping people yeah, um, in a cathartic way. And um, 
every record that we've done after that captured that bit of time of who we were at that time. And we never tried to write River Untread Part 2. Um, well, Ugly was kind of quite distinctly different, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was almost a reaction to River Untread. Yeah. It was a reaction to touring for two years. It was a reaction to living with one another. It was just a whole different experience. And um, in a way, the band at that time was more isolated uh, with each individual. We weren't very um, very much on the same page. You weren't? No. Um, Is that because I, of what was going on with the success of the group was dividing you and you were dealing with the, the fame, if you want to call it that, differently? or I don't know if it was fame, but it was always like you had a lot of pressure on you at that point to um, top the last one. Uh-huh. Um, That's the problem with such a critically acclaimed and commercially successful debut i guess isn't it is how do we follow this there's pressure on you from yourselves as much as from outside well you know what it is it's like from 1990 to 1992 when we recorded it you had this dream that you were after that probably was never going to happen but we were handed a record deal we were handed tours to play with some of our heroes, you know. Um, like who? Who did you get to go out with that was like a dream come true? Well, we played with Ozzy, you know. We played with Danzig. Um, we played all over the world in front of massive crowds. I mean, at when we first started, we were playing literally on two ping pong tables <laughs> with a, a string light bulb in a, in a place that was called... <laughs> twin lights and there wasn't even one light in the whole place <laughs> i mean we were playing these little hardcore shows yeah. in front of our friends and we and other bands yeah yeah and their girlfriends yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and um and they were serving pizza upstairs or you know the one one place that comes to mind is we played a pancake house in in pennsylvania we played the basement of the pancake house and uh and mina the power kept going out and Mina kept saying, uh, come on, what's up? What's going on with this place? And we finally got the power back on. She was annoyed and she was like, I want to see you motherfuckers tear this roof down. And they literally did. They started punching the ceiling, the sheetrock ceiling, and the whole ceiling fell down in this pancake house. And the owners came down. This elderly couple comes down. And they're like, what did you do to our place? <laughs> Until this day, we have people asking us to sign pieces of the ceiling amazing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's that's where we come from yeah 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 and we don't forget that and everything that we get to do play with our heroes play with we play with david bowie you know we played with slipknot we played with black sabbath um metallica um we're still in awe of the experience even 25 years later because we know that we played the pancake house and it's hard to it's hard to you know accept the evolution even all all these years later in a way you know it's still like you got to pinch yourself like wow pretty amazing it's pretty amazing 
and there's obviously been like breaks and then reunions which we'll talk about um i'm a good friend a dear friend of mine is whitfield crane and he sends his love i love it yeah and, and we talk all the time obviously uh when mina left the band in was it 97 was the original like parting yeah. of ways soul searching sun came out that year and that's when she left was it evident while you were making the album that things weren't great and it was maybe like playing out in that way or no in no? fact in fact making that record was a lot of fun right and um and I felt like we were actually in a more positive place. Uh, even the artwork on the record was more vibrant and colorful and, you know, hopeful in a way. Even though there's some really dark lyrics on that record, the vibe of it and the production of the of the record was very uh, uplifting, I think. Songs like Tangerine. Yeah. And well, even the album title as well as yeah. The River and Red Uglier definitely a lot darker and more so i think we were in a better place and but i think she was battling um her own demons with her sexuality back then and her own identity and i feel like and and i believe that she said this to me along the way is that she didn't want to be a success as a as a man and kind of you know just had to leave before it happened because we all felt like it was going in that direction and so so it wasn't like the creative well was drying it wasn't like the band wasn't functioning and achieving and progressing no in fact we had more opportunities at that with that record than ever before because songs like weeds were doing so well at radio and it was opening a lot of doors for us even in different continents like it was doing really well in australia the place we had never been before and we had plans to do australia new zealand japan on that album that we were forced to cancel because she left the group and um yeah i'll never forget we're on the cover of the aquarian um local new jersey paper uh music paper it's like an entertainment music paper and in the back, we had a one ad for a new singer. We're on the cover, and we had a one ad for a new singer in the back. Um, that was That's crazy. The crazy time it was, and like when she quit, we were locked in to do a video for the song "Desire," and everything was all set. And Roadrunner was like, "We need you to do the video anyway." And we just had a bunch of characters mouth the words. Um, and you know, Mina wasn't in the video, but we didn't want to lose momentum because we had worked so hard on the album. Of course. And I think it was Scott Ian and the Anthrax guys that said we should try out Wit because we had tried out a bunch of singers. So that was Scott's suggestion. Yeah. Right. Because for me, I know Wit so well, and his voice on paper for me is like the perfect fit for your band like i think there's very few people that can hit those notes and and that was a problem people couldn't hit those notes yeah they, they couldn't pull off the river on dread stuff and um and he's so underrated as a vocalist isn't he because he's known as this singer in this kind of fun time you know californian yeah and i wasn't that familiar with ugly kajo and i wasn't that familiar with how different they were 
in per- perception of a band. Mm. I just, you know, we wanted a singer that was a confident frontman, and Whit walked in with this confidence and with the pipes. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, he has experience in front of large crowds. He was playing arenas with Bon Jovi at one point. So we were like, let's see if it could work. We were offered the Megadeth tour, um, and we didn't want to turn it down. And so I wrote out all the lyrics on this giant oak tag papers for him. And so the stage looked like, if you were in the balcony, it just looked like a bunch of cue cards on the floor. (laughs) He pulled it off. I give him a lot of credit. He learned a lot of material in a very short amount of time. We rocked some really big crowds that year. We did the OzFest 98, um, which were big crowds for us in America. We were playing with System of a Down and Incubus. Around the time they were blowing up as well. Yeah, right? on their first album. Yeah. Yep. And uh, Limp Bizkit, Limp Bizkit um, was also, I think that was probably the year of the Nookie. Yep. And uh, and Fred Durst would come on stage and, and jam with us with wit. And so we were, we were like excited that, hey, maybe we have a shot of continuing what we love to do, even though Amina had left. Can we, before we continue, was it a painful breakup when Mina left? Uh, it's funny. Uh, we had, Our last show together was Irving Plaza, New York City. And she called me the next morning and she said, Al, I just can't do this anymore. I'm going to have to quit. I said, that's cool. And that's... You all. saw it coming. Uh, we had conversations and... The last thing she said was, yeah, I'm just in too much pain to continue. And I accepted that. And that was it. And then um, I was, you know, I was hurt because I didn't understand why she was so in, in this turmoil or why, you know, the big thing back then was, um, you know, she wanted to do other types of music. Yeah. Um, but we were like, you can do both, you know, we're not saying it's one or the other, do both, do your solo stuff and do LOA. But, you know, there always seemed that missing ingredient of what else aren't you telling us that, you know, we gave her all the options, but, you know, until she came out, figured out for herself. Yeah. What she needed to be happy. Um, yeah so it was that missing missing ingredient that that unspoken truth that we didn't quite understand like uh, until it was revealed so that's quite a big gap for you guys right was there a lot of unanswered questions and at that time unanswered feel yeah well you know we the whole um the run with wit was going so well on the road uh road run roadrunner wanted a new album and so we started demoing um material new material with wit and we got josh silver back as a producer who we hadn't used in, since the river runs red record and um it just sounded like ugly could joe heavier ugly could joe with, yeah. with his voice on it 
And was um, he writing the lyrics, or were you writing the lyrics? I was writing the lyrics. Right. Yeah. And um, but he has a very signature sound to his voice. Yeah. And so it didn't sound like Life of Agony. It and and we weren't a hundred percent about. We didn't want to, in our minds, we didn't want to put out a record without Mina. And call it Life and of Agony. call it Life of Agony. So we were considering changing the name, and that's where Joey and I split at that point. I went and did a band called The Monk Thieves, and Joey did Stereo Mud with Dan Richardson, who was on drums. And and we just went our separate ways for a couple of years. And, um, and then we got back for the 2003 reunion with the River Runs Red lineup. And that was a couple of shows, and then did you do... What was the album you did around that time? Uh, well, we toured for a couple of years yeah. with the lineup and um, doing really well. And then we signed to a major label for the first time. Sony, was it? Yeah, yeah. we signed to Sony for the Broken Valley record. That's the one. You're which right. came out in 2005, and that was a whole nightmare. But <laughs> Is that because of what they did to you with the release of the album, or was it the recording as well? Was it kind of everything? I think it was kind of... Um, a little bit of everything. It was the universe. <laughs> it was, um, you know, I think we had a lot of fun making the record. We lived together. We ate together. We moved into a, a handmade house in Woodstock, New York. So you did reconnect as people. And yeah, the, so the I, I think so. Was yeah, positive. I think we had a good time making that record. I did. And um, we worked with a great producer, Greg Fiddleman, who worked with Metallica and Slipknot. And... Um, he came and hung out every day in the Woodstock house, and we would record those sessions. Oh, that's where you did it? Yeah. Uh, well, we did pre-production there. Wow. And then we, we actually came out here to record in a lot of famous studios, and um, and it was a fun time. We spent a lot of time together. Uh, it really felt like a band. We were sharing ideas. Um, Mina, Mina and I would work on lyrics together for that record um, rather than separate songs. Um, so it was very collaborative and very cool. And then, um, and what went wrong? Well, (laughs) (laughs) we, we were kind of talked into doing some tours that we weren't sold on the matchup of the, of the bands. And we didn't go over well with the bands we were playing with, with those crowds. And it really killed our spirit. And, um, that was leading up to the release. And, then once it was released it was pulled off the shelf three months later because sony had released 12 albums with illegal spyware on the records including like neil diamond and china jackson i think um big big artists um they were trying to prevent people from pirating cds so once you put the the cd in your computer it would not let you illegally download music anymore secretly and they weren't allowed to put that on the cds and they lost this big class action lawsuit and a judge ordered them to pull all the records off the shelf they reissued the ones that were big sellers and for a little rock band like life agony so the likes of neil diamond and janet jackson could come back from that okay hold on let's just wait for <laughs> Hollywood <laughs> but obviously yeah for you guys especially like recently reformed oh yeah and it was I like, mean, what a magic opportunity for you guys to 
you know, be presented with as well at that point, you must have thought like, fuck yeah, like the universe has kind of yeah has come together for us. This is a real special. And we did some great tours, great shows on that run, um, and played with some fantastic artists. But at the end of the day, it didn't reach the um, the height that we wanted, that the goals were set for. And um, did it set the band back as well? Also, uh, in what way? In the sense that, because obviously you didn't continue for long after that, right? Well. 2000 that was 2005 I, I get lost with the timing there but I think the next split was 2011 okay so there was another healthy run and chapter of the band's life but in, we weren't into writing new material right because we were like what's the point because you'd been burnt by the music industry and yeah the, we were pretty jaded by that yeah yeah so we wanted to at that point we wanted to tour on our own terms we didn't want to listen to anybody we wanted to play with who we wanted to play where we wanted to play for the amount of time we wanted to play and when we were calling our shots and planning everything we were happier and we felt like i guess we were getting our control back because when you sign to a major label there's a lot of uh people you have to answer to as far as the type of material you're going to write um, they check up on you to see if you have that hit single that they're looking for. Um, and this isn't that type of band. I think we have a lot of songs that could be on the radio, but we don't write songs to be on the radio. No. So maybe uh, maybe the label were trying to mold us into something that we weren't. Because they want their return. Yeah. It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Because I think there's so many bands out there that are so radio-friendly and commercially appealing in sound, but then I think the minute you start trying to mess with that sound and what makes that band unique and special, you take the soul out of it. And then anyone who was with them for that journey up until that point is kind of like, what? Mm. And then all these new people, because they are so alternative to what commercial music is now. I'll tell you, though, there's a lot of songs on that record that I love. And I'm proud of the record, despite that it got pulled off the shelf because of this spyware. Well, it was obviously nothing to do with the strength of the material on the album, was it? It's just a fucking horrible, <laughs> it was more unfortunate. Of a, you, know, it, you know, the band has evolved into uh, a very diverse animal. And while we have the River and Tread material... We also have Soul Searching Sun material and we have Broken Valley material and even the new record. And somehow it all works together in the same set. Together. Even though they're so different. If you listen to the albums, it's almost like listening to different bands. Um, you know, one could be hard rock or even commercial rock. And one is has roots in hardcore and old school metal. Um, but somehow when you put them all together in the same set, it works. And it it makes it live experience interesting because you have these hills and valleys and kind of take you on a journey uh, through our catalog in a way. And that's what we've been experiencing now with Veronica on drums. You know, she learned like 25, 26 songs of songs we haven't been playing for decades. And they're new to us again and fun to play. 
and even more diverse than we have been in the last few years because now we're we're finding these like fan favorites that are deep tracks uh songs like unstable uh which really hits home for people because it's about dealing with cancer in your family and um and it's such a, a common thread these days um and, and we were putting songs like that back in the set and really going through all these different emotions um, and reliving a lot of uh, memories through the whole journey that we've been on. I guess that's the trip, right? For you guys in the group, it's the it's the soundtrack to your lives and the the soundtrack to the highs and the lows and the the triumphs and the struggles and the, yeah. the experience, the full 360. And celebrating the songs because when you strip away all the business and and the pressures and trying to make a living at doing something that you love and putting it all on the line to do something that you love and sacrificing and the people that you leave home that are sacrificing with you when you strip all all those layers away it's about the songs and poetry and emotions and and trying to channel that into music and um and when you play that you know on a night like tonight uh it's really beautiful you know it's it's something really special about just like honoring the art of it one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So let's segue from one art form to another. When do you start really getting involved with the comic graphic novel side of things? Well, Is that a continuous thing that you're practicing and, you know, exercising whilst the music's going on? Or does that sort of kick fully into gear around that kind of 2010 second breakup of the band when you figure, oh, maybe I want to try and explore a totally new avenue professionally now? Uh, like I was telling you, as a young child, I was always drawing in school, at the lunchroom table, doodling on my books. I, I In the neighborhood, as I was getting into heavy metal and, and rock music, I was the guy that you would come to to paint your jacket, your denim jacket. I'd paint 
Iron Maiden Killers on the back of your jacket for 50 bucks or whatever it was. Right on. <laughs> oh, so you were hustling as a kid. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's great. I was doing everybody's jackets. I was drawing on people's notebooks and, and all that stuff. <clears throat> and um, and I would make my own comic books in my own in my notebooks just for fun. I mean, that's how I kept busy, especially in the summer times. Um, I would make my own comic books and I would photocopy them and talk the local comic shop into selling them for 25 cents or whatever it was on the rack and they'd sell you know the whatever 30 copies i would make they would sell by the end of the summer and people would buy them and um it was just fun it was fun to be able to tell stories and make my own characters and uh i grew up digging comics like the punisher and stuff like that um and I eventually went to uh, an art college. I got a scholarship to an art college. And I took a cartooning class that was taught by Walt Simonson, who drew The Mighty Thor. And also he worked on X Factor and a bunch of other stuff. And so he was my cartooning teacher. And um, I never did great in school. I, you know, halfway through my experience at college, the band started. And that was so much fun and so different and exciting playing in front of people every weekend. It's better than studying, right? Better than studying. <laughs> I was never into art history. Um, and so I just got by in college. Yeah. My dad talked me into staying because I wanted to quit and go on the road. The rec River Undred was just coming out in my senior year. And he convinced me to just hang it out for another six months, get my degree. He says, like, then you could you always have your degree if the band doesn't work out you could get a job doing this or that so that was smart advice i did that i stuck it out but it, i put the art on the side and i jumped in the van with the with the guys and and we started playing and touring and it was you know a crazy high energy experience uh to, you know visiting europe you know in the in the early 90s um, being in a different city every night, um, you get inspired every day, right? Yeah, it was it was it was hard too because the conditions. We were out for two months in the dead of winter, uh, with twenty six people on a bus. You know, um, it, it was crazy, crazy times. Um, but you it 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 molds you to who you are, and it shapes you, and all these experiences. Uh, uh, you know, give you confidence that you can overcome other obstacles and things like that. So, definitely life lessons. Um, and you weren't going to get that in school. No. Um, so, I put the art on hold, although I, you know, I was still drawing the covers for River on Dread and, and the t shirts and everything art related that a band needs flyers stickers merchandise and i was doing that throughout the whole history of the band i think i drew every shirt that ever came out still now as well yeah 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 solid <laughs> um so i was always involved in, and i was doing that for other bands too i would, eventually i learned how to use a computer and i would design websites for bands i you know work with shine down and three doors down and puddle of mud and um a lot of bands like that 
I was, you know, very early on, I was drawing Church for Biohazard and Type of Negative and um, just kind of endless. I was just always that guy, the, you know, the guy that knows how to draw and get it done. And, um, and people would come to me and I'd do it. And um, in college, I had this idea for a comic book that I never finished. And so by 2009, when the band started to slow down a bit, um, I was just so determined that I, I wanted to complete, the, get this idea out of my head and make it real. And I went through a bunch of artists that work for Marvel um, to bring my story to life because I wasn't that confident in my own drawings at that time. And they, I never got one sketch from these guys. I, I must have waited four to six months, and I never got anything. I got so frustrated that I said, I'm going to draw it myself. I don't care what it looks like. And I did it. And um, I was on Twitter for the first time, just following some comic book artists and, and writers that I like. And through Twitter, I got a publishing deal. Through Twitter? Yeah. How? I, I just was, tweeting some work out and... No, I, I was uh, just connecting with some people in the industry, and <clears throat> I noticed that this this one cat um, liked heavy metal, and he was he was made some posts about Motorhead, and I connected with him, and he was like, "Oh, I bought your record," and at the time, I just thought he was another writer of a book that I liked, and he turned out to be the editor in chief of one of the bigger indie comic book publishers that did 30 days of night um and a lot of horror books and eventually gi joe transformers star trek Godzilla, what's their name idw idw yeah. yeah yeah and now they're a powerhouse yeah yeah but he he's the guy that gave me a shot and he was he saw my first book was wire hangers i shared a, the the pitch with him and he was like, "Yeah, we'll put the, we'll put that out." And I was like, "What? Really?" And yeah, they greenlit the book, and um, I was making a monthly comic book, and then it got collected into a graphic novel. And I figured, while I still had their ear, I pitched them another story. Go again, yeah. <laughs> and I did this book called "Crawl to Me," and after that, Killogy, which I incorporated Marky Ramone and. And Doyle from the Misfits and yeah. Frank Vincent. And so with those, I mean, what a unique idea. Um, how do you decide to pair together like a guy from Goodfellas and then Marky <laughs> Ramon? Like, do you just think these are interesting cats that I've grown up with as pop culture icons that I'd like to see play off each other in this fictitious world? Um, the original idea was to make three Twilight Zone type of stories that intersected and when I started drawing the characters they just kept looking like uh, these heroes of my childhood yeah and I was like huh maybe I wonder if I'll just try and pitch them starring in my comic book I don't think it had ever been done before to cast a comic book um, without you know coming off a TV show or something like that yeah. this was just to star in the comic book as a fictitious character. As a new entity. Yeah. yeah. And I was able to convince all of them. And they had never even seen any pages. I didn't draw it up. Just the covers of them in action. Just going on that New York 
<laughs> connection yeah yeah and I, you know and... i tried to you know find the find connections to the, to each of them through people that i knew and i got in the room and pitched them and each one said yes and all of a sudden okay here's this thing with all my heroes and um after that we were able to adapt it into an animation using their own voices and there's a, like a six minute proof of concept online you can see at killogyanimated.com that's just spelled kill o-g-y right yep like trilogy but yep. killogy um killogyanimated.com and uh we work with this Canadian 3D animation studio, which is fantastic. They, they, uh, they took my artwork and were able to make 3D characters out of everyone and, and make these 3D environments. And, and, and the audio was very DIY. I would go to Frank Vincent's house. He'd invite me in his kitchen with my laptop and we, he'd just do the voiceover right there in his kitchen. Uh, I went to Mark Ramon's studio right before a rehearsal before a tour to get a couple of lines from him um i've never heard doyle talk but those other two have such distinct and incredible <laughs> new york voices yeah. as well like yeah. is doyle like that as well as his voice like that too or is he <laughs> what's his vibe we, he, doyle's a character in his, yeah. in, his, in his own right um i'd imagine him this, i'm probably way off to just have like a super high almost soft girl-like <laughs> no, voice Joy just as such a juxtaposition to his insane he's, physical physique he's very new york he is yeah, right very new york too. <laughs> um he's a sweetheart and um <clears throat> it was just a, it was so much fun and very exciting to to just to work with them on a personal level get to know them as as friends and and even after we did the comics and and the animation before Frank Vincent died, he would check on, up on me every couple of weeks. Hey, how's it going, kid? You know, see if there's any updates or movement on the project. And so he was invested in it, and he really cared and supported what yeah, you were doing. Yeah, and we did some conventions nice together, thing. and and we got very friendly. You know, he was very cool, very sweet man. He he was a musician as well when he was younger. He was a drummer, and so we would trade a lot of musician stories. Nice. And he he had a band with Joe Pesci. Really? Yeah. Not the rap project that Joe Pesci did. Nope. No. <laughs> they were like a Jersey uh, 70s band, you know. Uh, what, little Steven kind of vibe? Yeah, I mean, I think back then it was, you know, maybe maybe it was a little earlier than it, maybe 50s or 60s. Um, I have the clipping somewhere. I can send it to you, actually. <laughs> Let's see it. Um, and you know they would wear the suits and stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. and and then it was a big kind of like five piece band and Joe Pesci played guitar and sang and, and Frank Vincent was behind the drums and in between the songs they would have this banter up and back and they make people laugh and then eventually they they became like a Martin Lewis type of co comedy act and what like a double act yeah right on yeah and, and then were, that was how scorsese became aware of them was it yeah because they had this kind of rhythm yep and they would play the clubs and so when pesci got raging bull he says i got someone to play salvi and they had this chemistry that was just undeniable and that was the beginning of it i love it yeah. i mean the chemistry between pesci and de niro as well 
is so undeniable mm. and it's it, as you say it's a very rhythmical musical thing isn't it absolutely yeah. like there's there's a real that, flow to that it. timing yeah you know and we talked about timing me and frank um and i actually interviewed him for an interview in the back of the killer geographic novel and i have that whole recording i really have to edit it for the public yeah you should point. man it's so great he's got great stories would you ever consider doing something like this like a podcast with illustrators and yeah, I mean, you know what it is? I spend so much time drawing these days. It's either drawing or writing music or playing music that... You're busy it, enough. It's really <laughs> hard to find any time to do anything else. You got kids? You got a wife? Uh, yeah, I got a wife and a child. And So with yeah. all of that together, yeah, you got your plate pretty full. Yeah, I'm pretty full. And plus, you know, we're developing each of these comics into films and TV shows with... Are any of them close to being completed as features? I've been at it years, yeah, and I, I'm just starting to see one of them really get momentum. Um, because every time you think you're really close, you lose an element. You need so many things to align to make it happen. Yeah. Besides the obvious of the money, a script, the right producers... Uh, a distributor, all these things, not even including talent, the actors. You need all that to align and everyone to be on the same page, to have the same vision moving forward, to work within a schedule to actually execute it. Yep. I've learned that just because you have three out of the five pieces, that doesn't mean it's happening. It's not the same as DIY punk rock, is no, it? Getting it done. No, not at all. <laughs> I wish it was. But um, Crawl to Me has come a really long way it it's we hooked up with these great writers that wrote a few features and um the original script was a very close adaptation of the comic and along the way we've had several directors attached to it several production companies attached to it um the rights have changed several times but now we really have a great group of people and and the script went through a rewrite and um, and I think that's that's really headed in a in a really good direction. We're really hoping to film um, this winter. Okay. Yeah. So um, the moment is nigh. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I, I I always say that it's not real until I'm in the seat eating popcorn. Yep. Watching it on the screen. That's when it's real. Well, fingers crossed, dude. So if people want to find out beyond the band stuff. Yeah. Uh, what's going on with you and keep up to date have you got obviously a website and yeah it's just my name dot com alanrobert.com yep. and I have everything on there the books the films the music right on and um, I guess just bringing it full circle with Life of Agony and the, the reconnection of you guys and I mean this new album is really powerful really beautiful really inspiring really just like fresh new i mean did it feel like with mina coming back into the band transitioned that you were all reignited as creative people as well as friends like did it feel like a brand new fresh slate i don't know for me it was a bit different um i think that in 24 in 2014 when we came back out on the stage with mina for the first time as mina that was the moment that we didn't give a shit what anyone thought I was so proud of her um, what a brave 
thing to do in such a masculine genre genre yeah um and we were just like fuck you if you don't like it and that was the attitude that we took everywhere we went after that um making new music in a way was just you had to it was 12 years after broken valley it was like we had to you know um so it wasn't this epiphany does it not feel like you're almost working with someone new though not at all no no it doesn't this is my old friend from yeah. childhood if anything it's just cool to see you're happy right um so are you then working with new um ingredients at play in that sense like there's a a reinforced sense of contentment and her being at peace does that feed into the writing in any way i think there's this now there's this um there's no doubt because i know that nothing's holding her back now so and and i feel that in the live situation too that she really came out of her shell because in the early 90s she was very shy on stage and almost hid behind the microphone in a lot of ways when she was battling her own issues in her own mind. And so, surrounded by all these other guy singers that are like, Yeah, and that's kind of like intense. where we were going with the ugly record, more introverted. And now she's right in everyone's face yep. um, with the new stuff and the old stuff. And it's, it's a different live show. It's kind of like back to when we were kids. Before she got lost along the way. And she may have always been battling that, even as a young man. But it didn't show as much. Because you have the exuberance of youth propelling yeah. you forward, don't you? Yeah, and maybe, you know, you had this dark secret that no one knew, knows about. And you, had, you carried off this persona uh, to fit in with the scene or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but once we were now out of that, you know, weekend warrior type of thing. And, the shackles and was, almost, yeah, yeah. And then it was like uh, a profession, a career now, and this machine and this cycle of write, record, tour every year or whatever it was. Um, now it's like, she just wants to play the songs and celebrate music and celebrate life and and just kind of put all that darkness behind her and and that's she really connects with the audience now in a way that she never did back then and that's awesome to see it's inspiring to me kicking ass taking names yeah you know it. You'll see it tonight. I've never seen. I've never seen the band in any incarnation. Oh wow! Ever before. So I'm really excited, and I'm even more excited that it's at the Whiskey A Go Go because obviously it's one of legendary the most place. legendary places ever. Yeah. And I've never seen a show there, so um, I'm stoked, dude. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been you. a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks. And um, yeah, let's go. And next time we'll do it on your home turf. I like that. <laughs> well, you coming back With anytime soon? Pint. You coming back anytime soon? Uh, well, I know you've just been there close, pretty recently. Yeah. 
but we're trying to work on some dates for 2019 for sure cool and yeah. a new record for the new year yeah we've already started writing material for it right on yeah nice one alan thank you very much mate cheers thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 